We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. My witness today is Kay Hutchison. Kay had a successful career in TV and radio, a beautiful house, and a loving husband. But during a holiday on the Côte d'Azur, she had what she described as a midlife crisis. Her search for a new life is chronicled in My Life in 37 Therapies. She's now an independent publisher and author, and host of the Books and Stories podcast series. She's also my guest on The Meaningful Life. So tell me about this event on the Côte d'Azur. It it should have been wonderful, but you wanted to go home. Why did you want to go home? (laughs) Uh, Well, actually, we'd been doing this holiday uh, regularly for about 10 years. I mean, it it was most unlike me. I just was kind of feeling not myself. You know, I had all these wonderful things. You know, we had a you know a lovely hotel. We had you know we were enjoying Formula One racing. We'd been doing this, as I say, every year, and really treating ourselves. And it was a bit of a highlight of the year. But for some reason, this year I just felt really out of place. I didn't want to be there. I was kind of not really looking forward to the routine, the things that we had done so many times. I just wanted to be away and be on my own. I didn't really understand why. And the reason for me ending up writing a book was actually partly to try and work out what had gone wrong and why I didn't want to be with my husband, who's a lovely, lovely man. And it was obviously something that was happening within me. And uh, I, I really had to get away and try and work out what was going on. I didn't understand it myself. Do you think at the bottom of it was a a crisis of meaning? I definitely do. But at the time, I didn't really understand that. And I didn't realise that because up until then, I'd been very much a bit of a workhorse career person. And I hadn't really thought about myself or what I was doing or the reason um, why I would suddenly, so out of character, decide to change tack. So yes, I think I think it definitely was, but I didn't fully recognise that at the time. But I think what reading the book really impressed me was the fact that you listened to this. Was it a voice inside? Uh, was it a voice inside? Um, actually, I I could almost say I was compelled to make to to I was kind of driven. From maybe it was a voice inside, but there wasn't any rational thinking going on. It was it was like I was forced into. I needed to get away. I felt as if I had to be on my own to really reflect on why I I felt this way. I mean, it's quite hard to explain what it was. It, it was it was no, you're not going to do this anymore. You need to get away now, and I did. I literally got up and left, went home early and actually almost immediately started looking for a place to live on my own. And that's exactly what I did. I lived on my own for quite a long while. No TV, no internet, no nothing. 
which is incredibly brave because if it had been me, I would have finished the holiday off and maybe thought about it, you know, five years later or something like that. But you just went for it. That is just so brave. Uh, Funny that you call it brave. I mean, to me at the time, it, it was a very frightening experience because obviously I had created this whole wonderful life that was shared with someone. And here I was, how could I do this? How could I break this down and walk away from what to most people would seem like a perfect existence? And people just knew that we were absolute soulmates. So to the outside world, this was incomprehensible. And how old were you at this point? Uh, Mid-40s. I mean, (laughs) it's so funny because I'm looking back now when things are obviously much, much more settled. But I I think in a way, it's kind of sadly predictable in a way. I had been pushing myself in a certain direction for all these years. And then at the age, which is normally sort of midlife crisis age, suddenly something happens to me. And I think there really is great truth in the fact that when you get to a certain age, Things happen that force you to look at your life and try to work out, why did I end up doing this? Why did my life come to this point? Why do I need a change? Because I have a book on this subject, which is called It's Not a Midlife Crisis, It's an Opportunity. (laughs) And I think that's what it was for you, an opportunity. Indeed. It, It turned out to be an opportunity. But I cannot say that it was all plain sailing, good fun and positive from the outset, because at the outset, it was a bewildering change. And whilst there were elements of it where in which I felt I needed to be liberated, I needed to have some time on my own and independence, I I don't think I thought of it as an opportunity at that particular moment. Looking back, I do now. And it opened up many other things in my life and new friendships, new understanding. And yes, huge new opportunity to actually go down a different path. So it was bewildering and I think probably frightening as well. What was frightening? I think to be honest with you, I was, I felt tremendous guilt because this was completely unexpected from my poor husband. I was frightened because obviously it wasn't very easy to explain to all of our close friends and people that had known us together for many, many years. So I I think I was worried about the impact that it would have on my husband and on our friendships. And the reality is that in going down this route, I did lose friends. There's no doubt about it at all. And ultimately, I went through a divorce, but I also ended up, and I think it was all part of this, I ended up losing my job, having to go and rent a place on my own. So it was, that was what was frightening, was the the unknown and the thought of being destructive to what was, to everyone else, just a a little perfect edifice. So I'm with you 100% at this point. 
The bit that I don't quite understand is why 37 therapies rather than just (laughs) one or two. Well, um, the 37 is a little bit random because really it was about the time when I was thinking about putting some sense of structure and organisation into looking back on this time where I ended up investigating lots of different therapies. And it was actually a friend of mine said, oh, you you want to call your book My Life and 30 Therapies. That's great. But actually, I've counted them up and there's actually 37. And it, it seemed even more random. And I thought, well, why would I call it 30 and try and squeeze it into 30 when there are 37? So that that's why. The really interesting thing for me was that I embarked on the therapies really very organically to begin with. I got back. I knew I needed help. I went to my doctor and I started very, very sort of gently looking at, yes, could I go to a counsellor who would help me? Then it was about, you know, other physical things that I could do that would help. Well, what is going on with me physically? Because it felt as if I was very confused in, in my head. And of course, I then discovered that I was beginning to go through the menopause as well and that there were physical symptoms that I could go to have therapeutic sort of responses to. There were therapies out there that could help with the effects of the menopause, going through life changes. So I started becoming really interested in all of these different things because The menopause and midlife crisis really changed so many things in you physically and mentally. And I just found myself drawn to discovering more. Why had this happened? And I wanted to understand. At the end of the day, I wanted to help myself and understand. Looking at the menopause in particular, and obviously there are very obvious physical changes How did they knock on in psychological changes? Well, I I think the physical changes for the menopause, and clearly they're they're different for different people. Some people don't even have a menopause or don't recognise it as such. For me, the physical symptoms, the, the hot flushes, the mood swings, the difficulty sleeping, the very regular panic attacks, actually make you feel completely out of control. And that means that I was physically run down. I don't think that I was thinking as clearly as I had been at work. I think I was embracing a sort of different approach to life. I think that's what it felt like to me. It was a a confusion. And of course, the minute you start to feel oh, I'm not thinking as clearly as I I have been in the past. Your anxiety levels are really brought into the mix and that makes everything 10 times worse. And did you actually recognise yourself? No, no. I, I think what's really interesting is that before this happened, you could have gone to any one of my friends or colleagues at work And they would have described me, I think, I believe, in a certain way, which is quite straight-laced, very, very dedicated to work, 
probably, you know, reasonably good fun to work with, but absolutely, you know, focused, driven, well turned out, you know, dress well, executive type. But after this, I think people would have found it very difficult to recognize that person. I, I often say that there was a before and an after me, which was were two different people. Because certainly reading your book, I don't recognize straight laced and focused because it sort of feels like you were prepared to do absolutely anything. And the fact that 37 therapies suggests that you weren't particularly focused. I mean, give me an example of a therapy you did that was the opposite of straight laced. Uh, Well, I think something that's actually very um, well known and well publicised these days, but I think when I was doing this wasn't, was I went for colonic irrigation. But the, the interesting thing was that what I was looking for in colonic irrigation was a clear out of my thinking. So although people might think this is a physical thing, and it's supposed to give you very good skin and a flat stomach and all these wonderful physical things that we all want to have. I was actually looking for a clear out in my mind because I was so, I, I was feeling so kind of stuck as a person in my life. I was feeling so stuck that I needed something really to shake me out of that feeling of, of being sort of held back, trapped unable to move forward. So tell me about your shamanic journey in an Egyptian temple, which was one of the more unusual things you did and was also, I think, the opposite of straight-laced as well. Indeed, indeed. I I think I should say that I think this side of me was always there, but I had sort of denied it and pushed aside because it didn't fit in with the life that I had chosen. And I think one of the the liberating things that happened to me in this period was that I discovered a part of myself that I had denied. And therefore, I felt this tremendous sense of, of openness and that I could look to other things that I was intrigued by, but had never had the opportunity or freedom and independence to actually explore So the shamanic trip, I mean, it's really quite odd how it happened. I had gone for a past life regression session. And at the end of that, I had been told that Egypt and sort of exotic places like that had been part of my past life regression. And the past life regression therapist had said to me, oh, you ought to go on something that I tried last year. It's a shamanic trip run by a German, um, uh, very experienced therapist who actually takes groups to the pyramids of Egypt and into the Sahara Desert for 10 days. And she said, you would probably get a huge amount out of this. And I did. The thing which just amazed me more than anything. So here was me, a Scot, in the middle of this group of Germans, all speaking German, Thankfully, they did actually speak some English and the leader of the group, who is a wonderful man, was very open to sharing the shamanic ideas, but in a way that really was relevant to today. So not associated with any religion, 
but actually something that allowed you to connect with your inner spiritual self and a wider spiritual sort of domain. And it's, as you can see, I'm sort of struggling to express what, what it was. So I'll tell you what happened. Yes. We went to the oldest pyramid. All of the sort of day tripper tourists were thrown out at a certain time. And we, this small group of 10 to 15 people, were allowed the complete free run of this oldest pyramid in Giza. And we walked right to the centre. I mean, it was just an incredible experience because it takes you about 40 minutes to actually get to the centre. And you're getting up and down through all these different passages, crouching down, sometimes a very, very tight space. Then it would open out into large chambers. Then you'd be back into crawling along into this next place. We eventually... And it must have been very dark in there as well. Well, it, it wasn't... <laughs> It wasn't dark until we got right to the centre. When we got to the centre, because you obviously need lighting to to find your way, although we did take torches with us. When we got right to the centre, um, there was a sarcophagus right in the middle of the pyramid, which was the king's chamber. We had to squeeze through this tight hole to get into this final area. We all lay down with our heads to the walls of this small space. There was a sarcophagus in the middle. And then our leaders gave a sign to have all the air conditioning noises and the lights switched off. So we were there. I mean, if you're claustrophobic, it's not a good thing. I had to keep my mind away from feeling claustrophobic. But it it was then that we were able to experience the energy of the place in it. I mean, in all its glory, because there was a slight sense of fear, but also this need to let go and actually just experience the energy of the pitch black, the feeling of the place without any human mechanical interference. And he did a meditation which allowed us to really relax and enjoy this experience of sort of nothingness and completeness all at the same time. I mean, I know it sounds really trippy and really weird because I'm I'm quite a down-to-earth person. (laughs) But actually, when we left and we clambered our way back out, we had experienced something really special in there that I still can tap into to this day. And we felt very close, the group, after that experience. And uh, it's kind of difficult to put into words, but I'd, I'd certainly recommend it. And how do you tap into it today? Well, I mean, I I think one of the things that's become very important to me is an ability to just keep calm, to actually sit quietly somewhere where you don't have any distractions and to really focus on breathing slowly, slowing down the heartbeat and the pulse rate and actually just being with yourself, closing your eyes, realising that, you know, you have this incredible presence on earth, really, that is an energy source within itself and that it can actually make you, it can renew you by resting you, 
mentally and physically and realizing that you can center yourself no matter what is going on around you you can actually center yourself and you've got this this sort of power within you that you can tap into so to me that is something that I learned on that trip so one of the things that uh, me and my producer are both thinking about is the 10-day silent retreat. You did that as well over Christmas, which seems to me a really hardcore <laughs> time to do it, because you sort of think of Christmas as at least phoning up your friends and family. But this, you're not allowed to speak to anybody for 10 days. There's basically no exercise because they pin you into a tiny piece of land. There's no reading, there's no writing, there's no nothing beyond meditation. So number one, why did you do it? And number two, what's it like? (laughs) Well, first of all, I think it was an incredible experience and I'd recommend it to anyone. I'm quite a chatty person, so I think people thought I was completely mad going on this, especially over Christmas. But there was something about it that I I think especially at Christmas time where, as you know, everything just gets so crazy. It becomes so about buying things and overeating and over everything. I just thought this oasis of calm would be a wonderful thing for me to do for one year in my life to miss Christmas. And I think it was just representative of how much I wanted change in my life. So it wasn't anything very glamorous at all. We were in a basically in a children's activity centre in Norfolk. And uh, when we turned up there, we didn't really know what to expect, but there were 50 women. We were all segregated from, there was a, a male silent retreat down the way. And I think that was also to discourage connection and communication. So all our phones were taken away, our jewellery was taken away. And really what we were left with was a life that involved very early starts, 10 hours of meditation a day, sleeping in bunk beds, eating very healthy vegetarian food, and just sitting in this hall really for hours at a time learning how to meditate and the type of meditation that we were learning about was vipassana meditation which is about focusing on the minute circulation within your body the blood circulation and the 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 kind of minutiae of what makes your body function I mean, it was just really impossible to begin with because we were all fidgeting. It was, you know, dark, you know, the days were very short. We were only let out for a little bit of exercise, an hour at lunch, maybe 20 minutes between sessions during the day. But the amazing thing was, as time went on, some people left because they they just couldn't hack it. But I found that soon, although it was difficult, I did feel that I had cleared out my mind of the rubbish that often invades your mind, especially at a time of Christmas where there's just too much going on. You can't think straight. I definitely was eating more slowly. I was slowing everything down and clearing out the rubbish in my mind so that by the end of that time, again, I was able to tap into this place that allowed me to be calm and to be comfortable being completely on my own. 
And I think that independence that I derived from the experience, I found to be a very important part of who I am now. And you did some much more conventional things like psychotherapy. Which kinds of psychotherapy did you do? Well, I would say that I did what people would regard as normal psychotherapy, which is talking therapy, counselling. I, I did quite a bit of that, but with five different sets of people. I think the most unusual form of psychotherapy that I've done is one that I've done more recently called sonic reset therapy. This is a therapy where instead of talking through your problems and getting the emotions, perhaps, you know, you're very tearful or angry, getting your emotions out. This is a form of psychotherapy that involves a short discussion at the beginning with the psychotherapist. But then you actually, through listening to certain sounds that evoke memories in you, you're able to process those memories yourself. Sometimes I felt that the psychotherapy would make me feel worse, certainly initially, because you're bringing these things back in. I really enjoyed the sonic reset therapy because I was able in a private setting to actually process memories that were not good. And I felt lighter and more in control of the process. And um, I haven't, haven't done it recently, but I think that's partly because it had such a good effect on me. Because I think one of the jobs at the middle of our lives is to actually resolve the stuff that wasn't resolved when we were kids, to deal with the stuff that went wrong or not went wrong, but just, you know, life threw us this hand of cards. It seems like you went back and tried to work out and sort out stuff that uh, could have been better when you were younger. Am I right in, in that? Yes, I think that's true. I think your childhood is incredibly important in directing what you do in your life. As you said, you know, you're dealt a certain hand of cards and basically you're expected to make the best of that. And it's really how you respond to what you're given, I think, that sends you off in a certain direction. And sometimes you you go off in that direction without really thinking. And it's only, as you say, later that you are able to put some perspective in what's happened to you. So for me, for example, the key things, Scottish Presbyterian upbringing. So you're not here to have fun. You're here to work hard and actually do well. So that was very deep-seated in my family. I think all of us were were the same. And you followed that to the letter, didn't you? You did well. You did really well. You achieved everything that you were told to achieve. Yes, but I think at the expense of myself in a funny sort of way, in some ways I might even describe myself as a kind of robot working extremely hard When the going gets tough, I just work even harder. When I had to deal with cancer, my mother dying of cancer, and then my husband getting cancer, my response was just to try harder. So I was not only working harder, but I was also looking after them, worrying about them. So it was just like just trying harder, which, of course, is not sustainable, as I discovered. 
And you don't want to live your life as a robot either, do you, really? <laughs> no. no, but um, I think, you know, it, it's a shame, really, because when you look back at yourself as a child, you really are just, you're a very sort of simple organism. You just want to be loved. You want to please people. You want to do your best. And you, you, you know, you're, you kind of learn that actually, oh, I have to try harder. I have to be better. And I think we forget and I think the world is better these days because I think we're permitted to have some space for ourselves more in the upbringing but I think in the days that I was brought up in which are quite old-fashioned there wasn't really room and maybe particularly in the Scottish Presbyterian side of things there wasn't really any room for you as a person it was it was more about what you did and I have to have to be honest that is also how I perceived it. Whether that was the reality or not, I don't know, but that's how I perceived it. So to be the K that tries harder and works harder and does more, you had to, I'm guessing, throw off essential bits of yourself. What did you discover were the essential bits of yourself that you threw off that you actually really rather need now? Yes, I think it was the fact that I didn't count really in it and um, that a spiritual side of me, a side of me that is about basically looking after oneself and not just pounding away and pushing myself harder, at, whether it's at the gym or in work. I, I had I had definitely pushed those things aside and those things, they are part of your life and part of you and you need to look after yourself in order to be a whole person in the world and contributing in a in a, a sort of much more wholesome way, if you like. So which of your 37 therapies do you say, no, don't go there? <laughs> well, I think I think therapies are a very personal thing. And if I'm honest, I wouldn't say no to any of them because for some people they work and I think you have to be really understanding of the, the one that didn't work for me although I know it does work for other people was voodoo but I think the voodoo um I mean I know think people think it's all about um you know sticking pins in your enemies and little dolls of your enemies but it's actually quite a thoughtful um and it's obviously a very very ancient traditional thing I think for me it just didn't work at the time because I was beginning to get better and I didn't need so many of these very alternative, left-of-field, slightly woo-woo things. For me, I was getting better. I'm so glad. But I did go through a period where I needed to speak to psychics because I felt as if I had no friends, no one to turn to. I didn't want to bother my friends anymore with problems. I needed, felt I needed to sort it out myself. But I came through that. But it took quite a lot of trial and error, trying different things to know what worked for me and what didn't. So which ones would you definitely recommend? I think in terms of my life now, there are ones that have stayed with me throughout and the key one, it is not very exciting, but it is yoga. Because what I get out of yoga is a sense of balance in mind, body and spirit. 
obviously there are lots and lots of different kinds of yoga, but the, the kinds of yoga that I'm drawn to are ones where it's spiritual as well as mental focus, as well as healthy physical exercise, stretching every muscle in your body and actually strengthening the limbs and the bones. And I think that is just something that if you haven't tried it before, it's just so worth finding the one that works for you because in one (laughs) session, you can actually nourish all of those parts of yourself. So did the therapies work together or did they sometimes fight each other? Uh, I wasn't aware of them fighting each other. What, What I did think, though, is that there are a lot of different therapies that profess to deal with the same things. So you might have something like um, sort of pH balancing therapy and you might have acupuncture. At the end of the day, they are all trying to make sure that the energy flow within your body is actually smooth and continuous and you don't have any blockages, you don't have any problems with your system not working properly. So what I found was that many of the therapies, the different types, were often trying to just help you physically and mentally flow rather than feeling stuck, if that makes sense. And you found a new relationship. Tell me about that. I did that. That's really interesting because I had actually... I think I had I had known this person in my life from way back when I first started my career. And I didn't realise, but our lives had kind of separated for a time. I didn't know he was also divorced and on his own and wanting to move on and wanting to look forward. It really was the most incredible kind of chance thing because I'd been through a lot of really not particularly good experiences as you'll know from the book relationship wise and he was someone that I always found myself talking to when we knew each other many many years back but when we by chance met again we were both free agents and we were both uh, sort of keen to have a, a meaningful relationship again all of the things that I had really through all my my negative experiences and relationships and I knew I don't really want that that was awful I need someone who wants to be committed to me I need someone who feels the same way and will accept me the way I am with all my strange and wonderful you know therapies but that that isn't wanting to encourage me in a new direction and I wanted to do the same for that person so I wanted it to feel very balanced and equal and that, that's really what I have now. Hadn't you felt balanced and equal beforehand? I think I I hadn't really thought about it. I think beforehand, and I, this is not to blame at all, because I was the person that I was who was kind of lacking in confidence in a way, and I didn't have this other spiritual part of me plugged into my, my system I think that I felt happy for many, many years until this period happened. And I realised that actually I had been putting up with things that were actually not what I wanted because 
that was also something that I had learned from my childhood. There were certain things that I just had to accept and put up with and not complain about and not even share that I wasn't happy. I, I, did, I don't think I even knew I wasn't happy. I just accepted it. But now there was an opportunity to say, no, no, what really works for me, if I'm going to be absolutely honest with myself, I don't want some of those things that I had in the past. I want something different in the future. And you weren't actually trained to ask, what is it that I want? So how could you possibly know if you were never, never trained to ask those questions? Yes, and I, I think it was really difficult for my my ex-husband, though, because I think because I hadn't expressed those things clearly, he didn't understand why I wasn't happy. I think one of the most beautiful things about this entire experience of my life, though, has been that throughout it all, I'm very, very close to my ex-husband. And in fact, we work together. So people will just not understand this. But we, um, I, I think that shared experience and the fact that, you know, we started up basically a new business because we used to have completely separate careers, but we were very work-focused people. And I think that is how it worked really, really well. We were very close, but we were like the best of friends. It sounds like you were great business partners, effectively. Indeed. I mean, I'm sure he would be very hurt to hear that, but I think rationally he knows that actually we had a very good friendship, a very strong friendship, and that has never gone away. And all we've done is we have focused that into our publishing business. And, you know, it seems to, it works. And do both men get on with each other? That's a really strange one, because I think they, they would find it very difficult to be, I don't know what you'd think about that, but I think they would find it very difficult to be forced together. So I, I the, the two things are quite separate. What What is really interesting, though, is that each of them knows everything about the other person, because I just talk about them all the time, you know, because I'm very open about you know, what we're doing in work. And I care about my ex-husband. I totally do. But I live a new life. And that new life, half of it is work and half of it is home. And it seems to, well, it seems to work for me. Who who knows? You don't know what will happen in the future. But um, I would certainly not want to be without either of these two men in my life. They are really good people. Well, it's wonderful to discover just how much these 37 therapies have worked for you. In a moment, we're going to look at a letter that I've been sent and we're going to see if we can cast some eyes across it and give some help for it. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. A year ago, my husband said to me, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. I was completely blindsided by this. We've been working on it all year and focusing on reconnecting. 
During the first half of the year, we had regular catch-ups to discuss how we were going. And as we started to reconnect more, we decided to stop these and instead trust the other to raise things if we needed to. Things have improved significantly. We're more physically intimate. We're kinder to each other. He hugs and kisses me more. He shows more affection. He's also talking a lot more of a shared future in a natural way, for example, discussing holidays or plans in a year's time. One thing I'm struggling with is he never has shown me love via words. He says he loves me, but he has not said, I am in love with you. This wasn't a problem before, but since last year, I'm so needing to hear the words. I asked him recently how we are going. I stupidly asked him if he thinks he's back in love with me, and he said he's not sure. He did say he thinks he's likely to have a future with me. I see a lot of good signs, and I'm struggling with the fact he can't say he's in love with me. Another thing I'm struggling with is to trust things that are getting better, and to trust he will raise issues because I was so blindsided last time. Any advice greatly appreciated. Do you think we're on the right track? What should I do if he never says he's in love with me? Do some people never re-say the words but still have the feelings? How do I focus on the positives rather than fixate on the negatives? If you'd like to be able to send a letter like that into us, there's more about the supporters club at the end of this podcast. But Kay, do you recognise what might be going on with her husband? Well, first of all, I'd sort of say I really feel for this lady because I do totally sympathise with her. I have been through something like that myself. I think what is interesting about the letter, though, is that it seems to be all about what he wants. And I sense that what this lady really wants is she absolutely needs to hear those words for whatever reason. And uh, I think she's very brave. I think she's done everything she possibly can. Look at that, getting the communication going, actually wanting to, to improve this, give it every possible chance. But she does seem to me, and I really recognise this, she is more needy. She is not as strong as he is. I don't think I want to use the word strong because actually being not needy is not necessarily strong. It can often be defensive. True, true. I just feel she's very vulnerable and I can remember being that way as well with someone and and being on the, the edge of everything that you might say, reading things into things that he might say. But I do think that there's something about this need to be less bothered about the words and more focused on what you want and what's important to you rather than focusing on the other person. And I know that's really easier said than done, having been there myself. And how do you focus more on what you want? Well, I think it's in this lady's letter. She needs to hear the words and feel that they're true. I'm in love with you. And I don't think that this person is going to do that. I think you need to give yourself permission to actually ask for what you need. Yes, instead of saying, are you back in love with me? You know, maybe that's that's not the right question. 
maybe she should be saying, I need to hear it and see what he says in response. This is something that's important to me. And now might not necessarily be the time to ask for it, but you do have to actually give yourself permission that actually your needs are important because I think you're 100% right, Kay. This letter is all about what he needs rather than what she needs. Absolutely. And I, I don't know, I can't help thinking that the option is that she either has to decide that the words are not important and she can change or she needs to find someone who freely is giving this because I I feel as if she is a lovely person and she deserves this herself in a relationship. Have you ever heard of the five love languages? No. Tell me about the five love languages. There are five ways of showing love, and I'm going to have to see if I can remember them all. The first one is with words. I mean, she's definitely a words person. Guess what I am? A words person too. The next thing is spending quality time together. So going off to the Cote d'Azur and Formula One racing and doing all of those things together, that is a way of showing love. There's acts of service, which is, you know, I'll come round and mow your lawn, for example, to show you that I love you. There's present giving and there's touch, physical affection. We use all of them, and particularly when we're in love, we tend to use all five of them. But we have a core love language. So, you know, words are important to me. Presents aren't so important. But each person speaks to their partner in their love language. And they expect their partner to understand because they're speaking in the only language they know. So my guess is that her husband's natural love language is not words. Hers, it most definitely is. So it sometimes helps to really understand what your partner's love language is. For example, my partner's love language is acts of service. So if I make the bed rather than just let it go, (laughs) you know, I go to the top of the tree. I mean, it's of no consequence to me whatsoever. But, you know, I do it because I know that it's It's important and it's really appreciated. But when I get told that, uh, you know, I love you... Oh, that is just so wonderful to me. So we have to be aware of other people's love languages. He's never going to be naturally somebody who's going to say, I love you, I love you, I love you, and phone up the radio station to tell them and get three records in a row played for you. But there's no reason why he can't do it. But you do have to hear his particular love language so that when he, for example, mows the lawn for you, you realise it's not just the sort of thing that husbands do. It's actually an act of love. And obviously, I might have guessed wrongly what his act of love is, but it might be physical touch. I don't know. But you do need to know your partner's one. Do you think, can I ask you, do you think, though, that people also, sometimes they can love in different ways. So, for example, you know, some people, as you say, will will actually do the a combination of words saying that they love you, but they also do lots of different things that are, are just the whole piece of showing their love. And you have to learn to accept the way they are. But does that mean that you 
you just have to give up on getting the things that you want. No, I think you have to, first of all, you have to learn to ask for them rather than expect them to guess. And you have to remind them from time to time. You know, it's actually really important. And the best times to do it is just after they've said, I love you. And you just reinforce, you know, that really was the most wonderful thing for me. My heart leapt. So that you give them the reinforcement for it. Don't just go at them, oh, you never do this. But I think you have to, you have to reinforce for them, but you don't have to give up what you want, but you just need to articulate it and explain it in a way that actually doesn't denigrate their way of showing love because each one of them is equally valid. Yeah. The other thing that I wonder, and I'd be interested to hear from you about this, is sometimes people can't show their love because they're actually full of another emotion, which is often normally anger, but they were not brought up to be able to show their anger. So it's all shut away and they don't just shut off the anger. Eventually, we shut off all of our feelings. Was anger something that you were allowed to to show as a child? No, no. What, what, what is really, really interesting is that I think what you've just said explains a lot about why the change between my relationship with my ex-husband and my relationship now. And I think, as I said before, we're all the product of our childhoods and the, the kind of framework in which we were the framework that we were given in which to operate. To me, I don't think I was, I think girls were just really in those days, in the 60s, seen and not heard. And, you know, my father would always sort of say, you know, oh, you'll make a great mother and you'll be good in the kitchen. And, and, and he had absolutely made up his mind about me. And the thing is that I tried to say what I thought but I was always kind of pushed away and almost pointed at, oh, look at all the other women around you. Don't you see what your role is? And I think there was pent up resentment about that, I'm sure, in, in my mind, that also came out at this time where there was this realisation that I had been living a life that had been constructed and an outlook that had been constructed for me when I was about six years old. I mean, how crazy is that? But these years are very important. And I think I think it does explain a lot about why this eventually happened to me, because all of that pain, I mean, I just stuffed down all the emotions, no matter what they were, resentment, anger, you know, sadness, and they come out. And even if they weren't actually, they didn't belong to your husband, they did need to come out. Yes. Which is a bit frightening for the other person, but it's better than keeping it all in and closing down. Yes. And causing illness often if you keep it inside. Well, I think what has been really interesting for me and what I've been reflecting on as we've been talking is with the 37 therapies and this division between ones for the body and psychological ones, Personally, I've always focused on the psychological end of it. And I think actually possibly doing something that sort of unblocks you physically, as well as unblocking you emotionally, or helping you become more supple physically and more supple emotionally, is possibly a very good way of going that actually doing more than one therapy at the same time isn't a problem. So 
thank you for making me have that thought today. That's been really helpful for me. I wonder what you have going to take away from our discussion today. Well, I think you've made me reflect on relationships in a way that I haven't for quite some time. I also think that I think what what is interesting is it's really interesting talking to you because you've obviously got a huge experience of the different kinds of psychological approaches to relationships and love. I think I have found that that has actually it's been quite reassuring because some of my thoughts chime with that, even although I don't have a sort of training in the background. But um, I've enjoyed your your prompts through the questions because it does make you reflect a bit more deeply about things that you might just skip over. Now, as a witness for what makes life meaningful, I need to ask you what makes your life meaningful? (laughs) So I had to think about this. What makes my life meaningful is is having a bat, well, is work, creative work, and also having a few really close relationships. You can have lots and lots of acquaintances and friends, but you need you need some really, really strong, trusting relationships, which are built up over time through shared experience and understanding, perhaps even a shared outlook on many things. Not everything, but many things. And how does the spiritual material that you've gleaned over your journey fit into that? I think that's a very personal thing. So I see those things that I've just described as the kind of manifestation of what's going on inside. I think the more centred and the more spiritually content that you are, I think it actually helps those areas of your life to be better. So I, I see that as very much an individual internal thing. And those are the external and they, they, they are enriched by having the spiritual side. But the internal and the external are linked together. They are very much so. But I don't, I don't really know if I can describe how that happens. I think it, I get the feedback from my very close friends. They say to me that they like my outlook on life or perhaps appreciate that I have a better understanding of them because I've done some work on myself spiritually. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. I think we have to connect the in in and (laughs) the out. Yes, I think you're right. And I think that's where why I love yoga so much, because I think it does bring those things together. Well, Kay, thank you very much. I would thoroughly recommend reading My Life in 37 Therapies. There'll be some of them that, I mean, personally, I was glad you were doing them rather than me, but I was pleased to hear about <laughs> them. And there were some of them I was really rather jealous about as well. So I, that, Which uh, ones? I think I... <laughs> Um, the one, the one that I was the most jealous about was going into the centre of the um, of the pyramid. That just sounds like just wow. I'm also terrified of the idea as well, but <laughs> there we are. The book is published by Red Door. Now, at this point, I'm going to say goodbye to you. 
But if you're a member of our supporters club, it's not the end of the conversation because if you join the supporters club, you get the bonus material and you'll get to hear the three things that Kay knows to be true. But Kay, thank you very much. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.